Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Cathy Pilgrim, the Library's Assistant Director General of Executive and Public Programs. As we begin tonight, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. I'm delighted that so many of you have joined us today as we celebrate the launch of the National Library publication, What Do We Want? The History of Protest in Australia. Described by Elizabeth Farrelly in her Fairfax column last weekend as a rare combination of fine writing, lucid analysis, quiet passion and astonishing images. What Do We Want tells the stories of those who have stood up, those who have raised their voices to change our country for the better. The author of What Do We Want is one of Australia's influential, think influential thinkers and authors, Professor Clive Hamilton. In What Do We Want, Clive explores the colourful and stirring forms of protest used in the big social movements that defined modern Australia. He examines how these movements for equality, peace, environmental action and Indigenous rights have confronted the ugliness in Australian society and caused major shifts in social attitudes and thinking. Since 2008, Clive has been Professor of Public Ethics at the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics, a joint centre of Charles Sturt University and the University of Melbourne. He is based at Charles Sturt University's campus, but here in Canberra. He was the founder and executive director of the Australian Institute, a progressive think tank. He holds degrees from the Australian National University and the University of Sydney and completed his doctorate in the economics of development at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. Clive has published on a wide range of subjects but is best known for his books which include Growth Fetish, Affluenza with Richard Dennis, What's Left, The Death of Social Democracy, Silencing Dissent, and Scorcher, The Dirty Politics of Climate Change. In 2009, he was made a member of the Order of Australia for his contribution to public debate and public policy, and in 2012 was appointed by the federal government to the Climate Change Authority. Joining Clive this evening is Jack Waterford, Australian journalist, commentator, and former editor of the Canberra Times. Jack is well known for his long and illustrious career in journalism, which began with the Canberra Times in 1972. Jack received the Graham Perkin, Perkin Australian Journalist of the Year Award in 1985, and more recently in 2007, was named not only a member of the Order of Australia, but also Canberra Citizen of the Year. Please make welcome this evening, Clive Hamilton and Jack Waterford. Welcome. <laughs> Many thanks for that uh, wonderful uh, introduction, uh, Cathy. I just wanted to make a few words before we start our conversation to uh, basically to, to give some thanks uh, uh, for which uh, with this book um, is, uh, owes more to other people uh, than any other book um, that, I've, um, that I've written. When um, Susan Hall from the library approached me uh, to write this book uh, some three or so years ago, I said no. I was too busy, had other projects, a couple of books on the boil, and I suggested she might like to approach someone else. And then over the next month, it kind of gnawed away at me, and I thought, gee, writing that book would be so much fun. And so I rang her up and said, Susan, have you asked anyone else to write that book? She said, no, not yet. I'll do it, I said. <laughs> and I'm so glad I changed my mind because writing the text and selecting the images that have gone into it uh, really, I've never had so much fun uh, as an author. And uh, so my first thanks are to Susan, who throughout the process has been endlessly uh, supportive um, in, in you know, getting over many of the hurdles and humps that uh, inevitably uh, this kind of book uh, entails. So I'm very grateful to her. And as I suggested, a book like this, uh, with the images, 
uh, is far more complicated than a uh, text-only uh, book. Incidentally, when we start talking, some of the images from the book will start uh, rotating through in front of you. I just wanted to give you a sense that this is a book about uh, words uh, as well as uh, images. And so in the course of uh, stages of preparing this book, I've relied very heavily on a whole range of expertise that the National Library uh, possesses in layout and text design, uh, in editing, in image location, in copyright permissions, uh, working the photos up into really astonishingly high quality uh, for, for the book. And so I'd like to uh, thank uh, Gemma Posh and Louise Dews for their uh, very important contributions uh, with, the, with the pictures uh, and, of course, the photographic team in the basement that does uh, magical work with the images. I'd like to uh, express uh, particular gratitude to Amelia Hartney um, for her fabulous uh, editorial work. When you see the book, I'm sure you'll agree, as well as her sage advice on various tricky issues that came up in the process of editing. She's really been a great delight uh, to work with. I've also benefited enormously uh, uh, from my access to the Petherick Room uh, upstairs, or downstairs actually, when I was uh, doing the work, uh, led by uh, its highly professional staff led by Andrew Sargent. And lastly, I have to thank uh, a special thanks for Gemma Williams, uh, who's joined us uh, here today, has uh, flown in from London. Gemma was uh, my research assistant on the book. Um, and she uh, immediately said yes if I'd asked her, asked, when I asked her, she was kind of fresh out of university, although then had to go back, uh, but she was completely committed for the several months uh, in which we were working very, very intensely on the, on the text and, and gathering uh, photographic images. And she arrived every day um, in the Petherick room with her uh, boundless enthusiasm and, uh, and uh, she was full of ideas. And, she, and most importantly, I think, for me, she brought a young person's perspective to this, uh, to this project because the last thing I wanted was for this book to be about nostalgia. Uh, I wanted it to be, uh, uh, as well as a social history, I wanted to bring it up to date and, uh, and make it as relevant for 22-year-olds uh, as it will be for 62-year-olds. So I hope that that youthful view uh, comes through as you read the book. Uh, and uh, that particularly is a manifestation of Gemma's uh, influence too. So lastly, I just want to thank Jack uh, for coming along and agreeing uh, to launch it. I remember Jack from my days at uh, ANU. He was one of the great leaders of the student uh, movement there and I was just one of the foot soldiers that turned up at the demonstration. So uh, I held him in a little bit of awe at that time and so it's wonderful to have him here all these years later uh, to help us uh, launch the book. So uh, we'll get stuck in. Reminds me of the fact that a year before you were born and only a couple of years after I was born, there was that cult movie made star starring Marlon Brando called The Wild One. And there's a scene in it where Marlon drives a bike into a little town which is absolutely quaking in fear as a whole host of other bikies come in and the mayor or the policeman or what, I can't quite remember who, but anyway, comes out and wants to know what they're all about. And then he asks them, what are you against? <laughs> and Marlon Brando says, I don't know, what have you got? What have you got? <laughs> <laughs> and this sort of reminds me of the fact that sort of at the, the height of what one might call the early demonstration era that you chronicle in this book, the 60s and the 70s with... Uh, demonstrations against Vietnam, against conscription, against apartheid, in favour of Aboriginal rights and so forth. It was often said that the, the students who were involved, or primarily students who were involved, you know, would adopt any cause and were quite undiscriminating against it. On the 6th of March 1970, which was two days before everywhere else in Australia, and the day after the Kent State um, Massacre in the US, three to 4,000 Canberra people marched 
across the bridge to Parliament House to protest in the first moratorium. And we were described by Billy Snedden as political bikies pack-raping democracy. <laughs> Otherwise, we were generally just known as long-haired communist hippie poofter bastards, I think. That <laughs> just about summed it up. Now, <laughs> the youth of today, including yourself, because you're still a very useful, youthful... 63. 62. 63, yeah. ...are just called advocates. What's happened? <laughs> well, I, I mean... I the hair part of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I had this kind of horrible image. I mean, when you're talking about Marlon Brando leading the bikies into town, I mean, I never thought that actually there's quite a strong analogy there. I mean, we think of the freedom writers, riders turning up in their bus in Walgett or Moree, these long-haired, poofy, commie students from Sydney University... The reaction of the locals to these aliens, these th very threatening outsiders, whom they couldn't understand and saw as a deep threat to the social fabric, was actually a bit like that bikey gang riding into Canberra last weekend. I mean, mm. you know, I, I was saying to uh, Janine, um, I'm really glad the cops are keeping a close eye on these blokes, you know. <laughs> Bastards, you know, how they dare they come in town and intimidate us all. And yet... Um, there was a very strong visceral reaction from conservative people who did not understand what, you know, this is, we're talking late 60s, early 70s, up, perhaps up to the kind of mid-late 70s, which this felt very, very threatening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it's also true that uh, more and more people started to see the logic of the case, or if, you got, if I can put it uh, that way. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about protest is, and this was particularly, this has been very uh, prevalent in, the early days of the Indigenous rights movements, I mean, the kind of latest phase, uh, 60s, 70s, and also the gay liberation movement, is that there were elements of them that were very cautious, yes. very careful, and would often say, well, look, we don't want to press too hard. We need to wait until society is ready for change. Mm. But the radicals amongst them would say, no. We're sick of waiting. We're sick of waiting. We are going to make society ready for change. And I think that's part of what's happened, that this cautious, moderate element has, has, come, to, has come to dominate. And the radicals who do, you know, are out there, say, demanding that society must be made to be ready for change have kind of receded into the background. I'm reminded in that, in, of Aboriginal affairs, I suppose, in particular, but where... Um, it became quite noticeable by the end of the 60s and certainly into the 70s that the moment anybody said anything truly fantastic and the best example of it at the time was the use of the word black power or black panther. But about half a dozen Aboriginal people, Dennis Walker, Billy Curry, Gary Williams, Gary Foley and, and a couple of others dressed in black panther style uniforms and talked about you know, seizing power yeah. or something. Anyway, it inspired, I tell you, at least 50 separate ASIO think um, papers. They became the subject of full-time attention. But what was even more interesting was that the equivalent in those days of the 7.30 report or the Sydney Morning Herald editorial column would start writing editorials saying... Granted that the Aborigines have a lot to complain about, mm. but this is going too far. Mm. But in the course of explaining just why they were going too far this time, they would actually concede a whole host of ground mm. that mm. had never been conceded before. Mm. Mm. Well, the fascinating thing about those Indigenous protests, and of course a lot of this story happened in Canberra, yes. and one of the things, and there are quite a number of photos of protests in Canberra, one of the things I noticed in... Um, a lot of the photos, not least the brilliant, brilliant photo of Jimmy Clements, the Wiradjuri man, yes. who in 1927 walked from Tumut uh, with his dogs to the opening of Old Parliament House, Parliament House, and he just turned up. And he was there, it was kind of the politics of presence, and he was saying, this is our land. That was in 1927. Extraordinary one-man protest that... Uh, and there's this wonderful photo in the book. I don't think it comes up here. Um, 
But yeah, the thing about the tent embassy and those black power and they even had the, you know the leather and the whole and they stared into the camera yeah. there was a kind of element of piss take in it yes absolutely uh, those guys knew what they were doing they knew they were winding up the establishment and the establishment let's face it was so easy to wind up i mean yeah. political bikies pack raping democracy i mean it was hilarious it was, it was fabulous <laughs> and some of the worst and most disgraceful things that happened i the few people here who are old enough to remember it but might remember that every time you went around State Circle, uh, the white walls of the South African Embassy would be painted a fresh smash apartheid. Mm -hmm. And every morning at about 10 o'clock, somebody commissioned by the Department of Foreign Affairs would go and put a fresh coat of paint on it. <laughs> um, and they'd go and, go and check out Jack Waterford, who had oddly had paint <laughs> all over his head. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the, um, the the thing was it was you know regarded as some sort of insidious conspiracy when mm. in fact what would happen would be at eleven or twelve o'clock at night somebody would say something like I'm bored let's go around and paint the South African embassy <laughs> and we would so there was a lot of classic Aussie ratbaggery in it yes. uh, as well as a very uh, serious uh, political purpose and I. I like to recount the, the the comment that was made again when the Freedom Riders in 1965 turned up yeah. at the uh, Walgett RSL yeah. and held those famous signs saying "Good enough for Tobruk, uh, uh, but not good enough for Walgett RSL because Aboriginal diggers were excluded from it." The diggers came out, the white diggers came out with a beer in hand and said, "Oh God, uh, thank goodness these rat bags are never going to run the country." I mean, so there was Jim Spiegelman, you know, yes. <laughs> and uh, a whole bunch of luminaries who actually did end up running the country. And this is all part of it for some of the time. Uh, we could perhaps talk about the, you know, the, uh, the victory of the new right in the end, as, as it were, although it's a more complicated story than that. But, you know, this is one of the fascinating things, that, that, that was the students who, who had a conscience and uh, a bit of courage and went out there and also liked a good time, uh, because the best parties, of course, were always held by the protesters. Um, you know, they were the ones that often went on to, you know, edit newspapers, um, get senior judicial appointments, uh, even become senior politicians. I'm thinking of Anthony, Anthony Albanese, for instance. I've got a photo of him there uh, with other, uh, as a young student uh, occupying uh, the clock tower of the University of Sydney. So, um, it, you know, it's not an accident that a lot of those people went on to do those kinds of things. And yet, and yet there was some feeling after the height of those, those times, which ended fairly abruptly with the election of the Whitlam government, mm. and we all thought the achievement of everything that we were on about, that somehow or other the baton was dropped that those people became too interested in the gravy train and that the youth of today mm. was not picking up the baton and asking for more. Now, if you look at this book, you see actually that there's a fairly continuous and seamless development into wider areas. Women, the rights of women in particular, perhaps, but also gay liberation, uh, war against discrimination in a whole host of fields, um, sex, race, etc., and uh, the further development in Aboriginal affairs. And then the emergence of the environment. And movement. then the emergence of the environment movement. Mm. Perhaps floodlit by the uranium, anti-uranium movement. Yep. Uh, that's right. But then really in a way, hitting its straps in the, uh, with the Franklin Dam protests of 1982-83. Yes. I was actually overseas doing a PhD at the time and I came back and people kept talking about the Franklin Dam and I kind of didn't get it, you know. You know, yeah. let the Gordon run free. I thought that was about Gordon Rugby Club or something. <laughs> I really did for about two years. I it asked someone. That was like in the late 1960s that many people thought that free Zab was something on offer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, at delicatessens in Melbourne or something like that. Uh, I, yes. I've been expecting that some clever marketing uh, creative will um, will uh, uh, 
recommend to you know Rothmans that they name a new cigarette Free Zone, uh, so that you know everywhere around Australia there would be the sign Smoke Free Zone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I shouldn't have suggested it, they'd probably do it. Yeah. Uh, that brings to mind, actually, that one of the pieces of continuity that you pick up in this book is the bugger-up movement. Mm. And what they were doing, particularly with cigarettes and alcohol, but also sexist advertising, which led up to Pat O'Shane's interventions as a magistrate in it and whatnot. But there was also a... F that was, if you like, the fun... Thing, yes. the merry prankster mm. style of thing, but it was also being alleged of the time that the old new left was starting to become humorless, mm -hmm. earnest, not quite as forgiving or tolerant. I think that's probably true. Um, well, it's undoubtedly true. And uh, just for those of you who, who might not remember Bugger Up uh, or came from Melbourne rather than Sydney, it was a particularly Sydney-based, although it did spread to Melbourne and one or two other places, Newcastle, a, a bugger-up activist was arrested in Newcastle. But they, uh, it, it was dominated by doctors, young doctors, actually, yes. and uh, they went out uh, in the middle of the night with their spray cans and they, uh, they, uh, they, they defaced billboards, or, or they called it refacing rather than defacing. Mm. And they had very clever few changes to billboards that completely undermined uh, the message. I mean, we call it culture jamming. Uh, it was a kind of, f it was the start of culture jamming. And uh, they only operated for less than two years and then they mysteriously disappeared. But the interesting thing about it was that when uh, there were only a couple of arrests, but they gave the um, classic defence of civil disobedience, they admitted that yes, they caused property damage, but it was in the interest of preventing a greater harm. Children smoking uh, or, or alcoholism or, or so on and so forth. And so it was, you know, wonderful. I mean, I remember, I think I was driving along Victoria Road in Sydney. Victoria Road was the best place for them. Yeah, and I Full saw Full of Balmain basket weavers, that was the That's reason right. why. That's yeah. <laughs> right. And, uh, and uh, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. What a fantastic way of making a protest. And I think that, and, and it was, was very humorous. Mm. Uh, except for the advertising industry who hated it and didn't know how, how to respond. And so their response was to have an advertising campaign uh, to condemn these vandals. But yes, I think um, uh, a lot of that has been lost, although within the environment movement uh, there is uh, at times uh, outbreaks of, of humour, um, which keeps or people going. Or sheer devilry. Yes, or sheer devilry, that's quite <laughs> right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the, the one of the end up things of the bugger up thing was that the, a, the perhaps a different set of anti graffiti artists, but began getting at sexist advertising, and that led to the point where I think a matter of defacing public property or uh, malicious damage or some other grievous thing, but involving many police and whatnot and a couple of women who had uh, wrote, this ad is sexist or mm. something like that, mm. but came up before, as it happened, Magistrate Pat O'Shane, uh -huh. who said immediately that it was sexist and acquitted yeah. the people, and <laughs> <laughs> that was that. Um, yeah. Uh, was Do you think there was a sort of a sense, though, in, if you like, some shift to grimness or something like that, that some things just weren't funny anymore? Well, I mean, uh, you, as you suggested, uh, Jack, uh, uh, after the, the election of Whitlam government and, and subsequent years, which was a great victory. I mean, when you think yes. about what the Whitlam government did, I mean, they did all sorts of fabulous things very quickly, like, you know, um, making sure that the Franklin would never get damned. Um, releasing, uh, con uh, releasing um, conscientious, conscientious objectors from from prison. Uh, sorry, not conscientious objectors. Draft uh, dodgers. Draft dodgers uh, from prison. Uh, within about three days, some dozens of uh, draft resistors um, uh, were freed. But what we saw is that protest or the campaigns. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the 
the women's movement uh, became much more institutionalised. And so we saw, and this was a good thing, uh, uh, we saw um, uh, campaigners uh, uh, drawn into the institutions of government, yes. uh, both uh, parliamentary uh, aspects of government, but also public service and non-government organisations and so on, uh, or quasi-government organisations, and they became involved in consultations and position papers and commenting on legislation and, and lobbying parliamentarians and so on. And it, it kind of, I mean, it was important and necessary, and I'm thinking now of the women's electoral lobby, um, it was important and necessary and, and a lot of um, advances were made, but some somehow sort of sucked the enthusiasm and the joie de vivre out of those protest movements. And, you know, it became boring and institutionalised. And I think, again, it was... It was uh, that th th there were breakouts from that. I'm thinking of the Aboriginal Embassy yeah. uh, in uh, uh, 1975. Um, no, sorry, that was 1972. Um, but I'm thinking more particularly of the environment movement, which uh, started to gather pace at the end of the 70s, but then really took off uh, in the 80s. And that was much more out there, you know. It was, it was much more um, a countercultural thing. It was the re-emergence of the of the counterculture, and we shouldn't forget that. Yes, I just want to pick up on that. As this thing became somewhat more mainstream and yeah. working over the institutions and making things happen, yeah. there was, in fact, a quite radical transformation occurring in the general Australian population yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, it actually became wrong in common parlance, you know, to... to you discriminated against Aborigines. Mm. Uh, the gay liberation, homosexual rights, the, the law reform movement and whatnot continued to develop the women's movement while undoubtedly less than completely satisfied with the rate of progress but actually achieved not just during the Whitlam years but sort of progressively through the Fraser years and so forth so that Within 15 or 20 years, most of the things that had been argued about in, say, 1965 or 1970 were actually now part of the general consciousness of Australia. Even, to some extent, a new reverence for the environment. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the kinds of uh, uh, social changes put forward in the early days of the women's movement were met mostly with horror by the mainstream, you yeah. know, it would undermine the basic pillars of our society, particularly the attack on the, on the uh, heterosexual family and the, and the subordinate role of, of women in it. Uh, but the system learned over the years that it actually could accommodate it and that this, these demands were, not, uh, were not, going to, um, not going to go away. Um, but you're absolutely right that the transformation that occurred... Uh, from the late 60s, but particularly through the 70s and 80s, really revolutionised Australia and Australian social attitudes, that it became wrong to um, publi publicly express all sorts of attitudes. I mean, I remember the things that I heard that were just normal in the schoolyard when I was a boy that were just horrifying yes. now. And well beyond anything to do with political correctness or yeah. something like that, reflected a genuine, you know, new social mood. Yes that discrimination on the basis of race or sex or creed or something like that was implicitly wrong, perhaps even un-Australian. The good folk of Walgett, the good white folk of Walgett's image of what was Australian had almost entirely evaporated, yes. except perhaps in some of the Walgetts of the world. Well, and it was I in... I speak as a former Walgett citizen. Yes. <laughs> Jack was telling me some amazing <laughs> war stories about <laughs> Walgett and Moree. In those days, um, yes, and and you know th there was a roiling, uh, constant public debate through those years that you know across every dinner table and at every bar, and in every workplace, there were constant difficult arguments where people would 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 challenge their uh, parents or their parents or their workmates or 
wherever. And the, the kind of attitudes and beliefs that you know, we all grew up with, you know, we thought nothing of talking about bungs. What's wrong with that? You know? um, and as soon as that started to be challenged, um, people had to say, oh, I mean, it's very hard to defend. Mm. And uh, over those years, there was a tremendous transformation uh, in uh, attitudes, particularly public attitudes. Mm. Private attitudes are, 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 are slower uh, to change. So, and it was then that, uh, you know, I, I remember that this phrase political correctness is actually, you know, an extremely interesting and important one. I remember originally when it first started to be used, it was, it was used, I think, in the early 70s. And, of course, it was adopted from Maoist language, yes. you know, in, in, a, in, in an ironic way. It was taken up by Western leftists and radicals as a, as a way of saying, you know, somebody would say something and they'd say, comrade, that's not politically correct. And it was a kind of gentle, ironic way of yeah. reminding people that this is really not the way, you know, you need to re-examine your attitudes. And, and we all confronted it and, and were confronted by it. I know I certainly was many times. And then so it, something happened, you know, in, in the last... 10 or 15 years, the neoconservatives have taken up this phrase and turn it, turned it around as, uh, and have characterised political correctness as this form of oppression that and the left has imposed. Yes. yes, against freedom of speech. Yes. Um, and it's this kind of reassertion of freedom of speech and a resistance to this oppressiveness of the fanatical left that demands that we do all of these things. But I say three cheers for political correctness. And, um, yes, well, we've got the new affirmation of everybody's right to be a bigot to mm. boot. Mm. Um, Thank you, Brandis. Yes. In that and, sense... And, and Bill Leake. Yeah. In the, in the book you talk about how the triumph of the new left was to some extent followed by a triumph of the new right. Yes. I'm not quite sure if it's a part of the same trend, but the development, say, of a Pauline Hanson, mm. perhaps some might say the mobilisation of a redneck community by a Trump in the United States, is that to be seen, if you like, primarily in terms of a reaction against this transformation in society? Or is it more, do you think, economic forces? Well, it's Pauline Hanson, you might remember, was forever saying <laughs> things like, Aborigines are getting rights and benefits that ordinary decent folk, like I represent, are not getting. Yes, which was a very powerful yes. argument. It was a completely wrong argument, and in fact, at the Australia Institute, when we heard this, when she was elected in 1997, over the next few years, it became a, a, you know, a commonplace. Um, uh, we decided to do a, you know, a very detailed analysis and it was carried out by the um, uh, departed uh, Max Neutzer who, who did a brilliant study of what kind of benefits Indigenous people are entitled to compared to non-Indigenous people and, and proved that, that it was completely incorrect to say that uh, Aboriginal people are entitled to all these things that white people aren't. I mean, it was a question of, of income and disadvantage, not colour. Yes, but there was a powerful edge of resentment here. Definitely, it. there was a powerful edge and of resentment. And there was a powerful edge of thinking that somehow or other <laughs> society had changed without their being consulted. Well, it's a complex thing. I mean, I, I make the point in the book, and I think this is true, but it needs you know, closer examination of your suggestion. I make the point in the book that uh, the left won the cultural and social battle over the last several decades. I mean, if you think about... Australian culture and society now compared to the 1960s. If you think about racism, sexism, um, homophobia, Australia has been radically transformed. And that was there were tremendous victories. Um, but what wasn't seen uh, emerging from the 70s, but particularly in the 80s, was the kind of the rise of the new right, the, the, the neoliberals uh, arguing for... Um, uh, radical changes in the way the economy and through it the political system were organised. And in a way, the left was kind of blindsided uh, because the, uh, the, the old left, of course, had argued for um, social ownership of the means of production, government intervention and so on. But the new right 
won those arguments, and it was particularly the Hawke and Keating governments that basically capitulated to that yes. and allowed that in and uh, basically collapsed any substantial difference on economic policy between the two main political parties. So you had the left one in the cultural and social sphere and the right one in the economic and, uh, and political uh, sphere in terms of the relationship between um, uh, economic power and political power. And then you've got these kind of complicating factors like Pauline Hanson that is in many ways a kind of throwback if you're thinking about the racism, mm. um, but also a kind of populist view which is very much opposed to neoliberal, you know, allow all these foreign companies to come in, sell off all these assets and so on. And so I think it, it definitely is a, a, a reaction against some of the great victories of the left, but it's also a reaction against the neoliberalism of the right. Mm. Um, and it's a very kind of messy uh, uh, situation, but I don't think it's ever going to really wind back the, the progress that has been achieved in the social and cultural sphere. I mean, I, that's, that's entrenched. Well, this is going off point just a little bit, though. But imagining, say, that a Hillary, herself a great angel of neoliberalism, is defeated by President Trump. How do you think that will affect the economic and social landscape of a place like Australia? Well, you know, Trump, Trump of course, is uh, like Hanson in many ways. He's reacting against both the victories of the left and the victories of the right. Yes. Um, um, I don't see, I don't think the, uh, a, a Trump victory and a Trump presidency for all four or eight years would, would roll back in any substantial way those great cultural changes. I mean, you know, we now have certain states in the US voting to legalise marijuana, yes. uh, which, you know, I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing, I might say. Uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting that, that in many cases the Democrats have been keen to put it forward on the basis that they think it might encourage young voters to mm. go to the polling booths. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. Voters who could not otherwise summons the enthusiasm <laughs> to vote for <laughs> either of the <laughs> major parties. <laughs> Get off the couch. Uh, yes, uh, yes I, I couldn't help laughing the other night, though one should on Catalyst, talking about the medical uses of marijuana. And, you know, one, one of the effects is as, a, as an Appetite stimulant. I think that's the munchies. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, one of the points I also make in the book is, is is one of the great things about doing this, and it's a social history as well yeah. as a history of protest. Although I, you know, I always had to keep coming back time and time again. People would suggest various photos, and I'd say, "Well, is someone protesting in it?" Yes. This is a book about people have to be protesting. Uh, rather than just engaging in, you know, some kind of, you know, lefty radical activity of, you know, what, of one kind or another. But it was also a, a social history of Australia. And I actually, mm. I think, if I can suggest it, it would actually make a fantastic school book mm. um, because it tells, you know, in an engaging way with lots of pictures, a very, a, a very kind of concise, but I hope in some ways provocative, um, and it's only one view, story of uh, Australia's uh, social progress. And I was, I was looking at, well, if you, if, you, if you look at the main social movements, and there are kind of five, five of them um, that I deal with. There's the peace movement or the anti-war movement. There's a women's movement. There's the gay liberation and uh, indigenous rights. And then later on, a little bit later on, the environment movement. Mm -hmm. And thinking, well... Which, were, which of those was most successful? And I think, actually, there's no doubt, it was gay rights. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just think about what it was like uh, in, the, in the 60s and these programs on TV recently reminding us of about in the 80s, the, the murders that, uh, were, that w took place in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and the collaboration of the police in it. Mm. Uh, and then I'm thinking, I, I talk about the, uh, the Dr. Duncan case, which I remember very well, the murder yes. by the police, Yes, it is alleged. Also a very strong Canberra connection in that. What was that connection? The student magazine Warone yes. sent its editor of the time, Paul Foss, across there and he came back and wrote in Warone exactly who had done what, which police were involved 
which was picked up by the Adelaide Advertiser yes, and so. became the cause of the Royal Commission. I didn't know that bit of That's fascinating. Yeah. The, the Adelaide Advertiser quoting Waroni as its source of yes. information. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, Those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> wow, and uh, yeah, yeah, it is. But why, why gay liberation? So you think back in those days and, um, you know, going back over it and, and looking at the extraordinary police brutality at the first gay, gay Mardi Gras, it wasn't the lesbian Mardi Gras, the first gay Mardi Gras in, in 1978. I mean, the, the planned um, uh, and systematically carried out brutal assault on those people who were demonstrating. Well, no, well, they weren't demonstrating. They were on a march. It was quite a happy march. They were on a they celebration. A celebratory march. And you think now about the extraordinary progress in uh, uh, against uh, uh, discrimination against gay people and just about everywhere. I mean, people have become very steamed up about equal marriage over the last months. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, um, it's the icing on the cake. But, you know, the cake uh, was baked uh, over those, um, those very many decades uh, to the point where, and again, I mentioned in the book, in 1994, the ABC took its outside broadcast units down to Sydney and, and they televised the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras um, and, it, and, you know, homosexual uh, rights and gay people celebrating uh, became, you know, an ent entertaining night in for the family. I mean, yeah. that was unimaginable in earlier times. So, th th so that it wasn't just legislative change, but the extraordinary change in attitudes of ordinary Australians, the radically increased tolerance um, of Australians to homosexuality, I think has been truly remarkable. And yet, and yet, I've instanced the folk, good folk of Canamble or Walgett and the Pauline Hanson, but right through this period of transformation, there were people, there was a John Winston Howard, for example, who right till the end in, I think, 1981 or 1982, was arguing in Cabinet that Fraser was completely wrong in supporting ch social change in South Africa, but that apartheid was the only appropriate uh, solution there. And when he became Prime Minister in 1996, he became an adept at playing what we call the culture wars, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily an attempt to roll back the curtain because mm. I think there's a bit of an admission that that can't be done, but an attempt to rewrite the history of it yes. and to deny that things were as they think. That It turns out, according to Keith Windshuttle, that the Aborigines were not massacred or poisoned mm. or <coughs> given flour or dispossessed of their land and it's about time we stopped apologising yes. to them for yes. it and a whole host of things that they've sometimes seemed to delight in just sort of throwing like a dead cat into the ring, if only because they know that they will cause outrage. Yes. In the sense that the left uh, used to specialise in causing outrage amongst the right. Indeed. Um, but I, I think it has to be said that although Howard, in, in his culture wars, yeah. caused a lot of anxiety and pain, particularly to Indigenous people, he didn't succeed um, and I don't think he could. I mean, of course, you still get the uh, fulminating ratbags at the Australian, for example, uh, playing this out and you still have politicians and Tony Abbott is the perfect case in point, whose essential engagement in political life has been uh, reliving and attempting to win the political battles he lost as a student at the University of Sydney. I yes. mean, that animates him. You yes. know, he wants to teach those lefty bastards who's boss now. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, uh, in, in a way, uh, giving a knighthood to, to Prince Philip was, you know, yes. up you, all you lefties at Sydney Uni. Yes. Uh, what do you think about that? Yes. And it worked. Well, you know, it, it was brilliant. I mean, he lost the prime ministership. <laughs> 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 but he did get us all enraged. But the thing is, he enraged most of his colleagues as well. Yes. They, well, they couldn't see the point of it. But he was actually imitating Howard. Howard would never have done it. 
but Howard always delighted in having a distraction that would get the editorialists at the age or yes. something like that, yes. knickers in a knot. Yes. But some of those guys, some of those, um, they never forgot their student days and uh, the, the, the humiliations of losing uh, to, to the left in the 70s. Yes. And, you know, Howard, for example, I, I dug up this fantastic flyer um, which was a, a debate on uh, conscription in um, Bankstown Town Hall or something like that. Uh, and it was, um, you know, John Howard representing the, the young liberals. Yes. Is, it, is it in one of these? No. <laughs> no, not one of these. And, um, you know, it was just months before uh, Whitlam won, conscription was ended and Australia withdrew uh, from Vietnam. Yeah. And by that stage, by the time Howard was arguing... Uh, against Tony Blackshield, who became yes. one of Australia's most distinguished jurists. Um, you know, the moral case for the war was completely lost. And I think it was uh, not long after the My Lai Massacre, which uh, this, this horrendous uh, massacre of a whole hundreds of people uh, by uh, GIs, which, which really turned... Uh, the war, uh, I think, is probably true to say that it was impossible ever uh, for the Americans and therefore the Australians to mount a moral case for the for the Vietnam War after that. And yet there was John Howard in the Blacktown Town Hall, wasn't fighting Blackdown. to the last man. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Somebody, yes. some other last man. I mean, yeah. yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, you might remember that he spent the last couple of months of 1972 working as a volunteer on the personal staff of. Sir William McMahon, ah, shoring up the defences, I think it was. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Now, I'm not one of those who's ever said that the idealism and the ideas of younger people have changed radically or that they are not involved or that they don't want to do something. We've had a stream of development of it. But what I want to ask you about is... The last decade, mm. possibly two decades, has seen the advent of information technology, the computer, the internet, social media and so forth. How, in your opinion, is that working either in changing the ideas of folk or, just as importantly in protest terms, in mobilising people to get and make their opposition known and to affect change yes well first of all i mean i agree with you i mean i think that you know over the last decade or two we've seen uh new generations of of young people who've become activists in a range of uh social movements who have been fantastic you know i mean the environment movement is 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 driven uh, by their energy and enthusiasm and, and more power to them and so is refugee rights and a whole host of other ones indeed and uh, you know they're well represented uh, i hope uh, uh, in the book um social media and uh, the gravit uh, gravitation of protest some protest uh, to social media i mean I, I actually find this a really hard question i i don't have any uh, very good answers i think that certainly has it is true that um, so-called clicktivism has uh, made it kind of much too easy to, to to protest and feel as though you've you've done enough. You're a boots on the ground sort of guy, really. I am. I mean, when when enviro environment activists ask me, you know, well, what should we do? I always say, um, you know, take more risks, and that's not on the computer. <laughs> that's out there on the sites. Yeah. And I think if. Uh, if uh, the Galilee Basin, if they ever they start to dig there, and they may well, I think we'll see a massive, uh, a massive boots on the ground uh, protest that uh, you know the Franklin Dam will pale into insignificance uh, in front of it. I think uh, because people are primed for that now, it's the most appalling uh, possibility. So yes, I think, I, I, I think there are lots of young activists out there, and plenty more who'd be ready to uh, put their put their bodies on the line. So with or without a sense of humour, you've actually got to show some commitment, make some showing, some demonstration. Absolutely, yep. You've got to be out there and do it. But, yeah. Take a risk. Sense of humour is really important, partly because, and, uh, you know, there's some fabulous examples in the book, 
uh, of, of activists um, who do zany, bizarre things uh, and when they appear on television or pictures in the newspapers, um, it's much more difficult to pigeonhole them as, you know, fanatics if they're doing something that's humorous, that makes people laugh at the same yeah. time. Well, I just remember in that respect, and I'll finish off on this, but that um, Gareth Evans, having made a serious tactical mistake in the dams thing by calling in the F-111s, but completely got off the hook when asked why he'd been such a silly idiot, said, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Jack and Clive. It seems like a good idea at the time now um, to say thank you both for putting your bodies on the line with us tonight and for your engaging and thoughtful conversation. Thank you also, Clive, for your dedication and for bringing about uh, What Do We Want? The book, I think, is a testament to your passion for research, for your understanding of society, and also a celebration of those who challenged our assumptions of the world. So thank you. Now, if it's okay with you both, I'd mm. like to throw open to the floor and I'm hoping there might be some questions for you from our audience tonight. So if you just raise your hand and we do have microphones to go to you. So, Hi, Blair from 350. Thank you so much for highlighting this uh, movement and the history. Um, and my question for you both, having come historically through, at the moment there's a huge crackdown on environmental organisations in particular, as you know, um, both through the threatening of their tax-deductible status, uh, calling for them to expose who all their funders are, never mind that no one else has to do that, um, and also behind the scenes, you know, threats of taking away people's charity registration and those sorts of things. Historically, has that kind of attack, that, as far as you know, happened on charities in particular, save the children as well around refugees have been vilified um, in the media and by the, the far right? Um, it's an interesting approach. Um, and it's a curious thing to think that people would buy an attack on people who have chosen to work uh, within charities, obviously not for profit. Um, and I'd love to hear your take through that history, if that's happened before or how it's happened. Well, let me answer that first. Um, look, I don't think that it has happened to a great extent before, but I 